Oh the Houdacity, a Hoodoo Factory production. The episode is Goofy Ball, hosted by Thad. First and foremost, to be clear, this is not a podcast about the documentary The United States of Hoodoo. This is a podcast for fans of the 1990s NBC sitcom News Radio. Hello to all you loyal and patient Hoodoo Factory fans, and even to everyone who just forgot to turn off their automatic downloads. I appreciate everyone who checked out the first and hopefully the worst podcast episode of Oh the Houdacity. I'm still developing this format a little bit, so this episode I try to pivot, try to do the episodes a little closer to the original format, I think more like a, a Hoodoo Factory light. So hopefully, uh, hopefully this will work a little bit better. To make our categories a little more interesting, uh, we put out a Google survey form on our socials so that fans and listeners could vote on their favorite answers, and I will compare to my answers to those of the people. Um, so you'll see how that works a little bit later as we get into the episode. And as always, feedback is appreciated, especially as the format and segments are being uh, gorellied into working order. All right, still, still trying to find out what's going to work, what's going to work best. Thankfully, Lauren has again recorded her segments for this episode, so we will hear from her several times today. This episode, Goofy Ball, is the second episode in this highly unorthodox Games of Folly unit. Let's kick it off with Lauren and the Agent Zero Pew Pew plot synopsis. Goofy Ball was Season 2, Episode 2. It originally aired on September 26, 1995, which was a Tuesday. Mr. James asked the staff in the office to test out the Goofy Ball, a toy manufactured by a company he recently acquired. The toy serves as a distraction for Beth and Matthew, who seem to never grow tired of it, an annoyance for Dave, who is sick of hearing the guh sound it makes, and an excuse for Mr. James to hang around the station. A group of fashion models sporadically appear in the elevator of the Criterion building on their way to a catalog photo shoot on another floor. Joe wants to set Dave up on a date with one of them. Dave finds himself unable to give Joe a convincing reason why he can't go on a date without revealing his secret office romance with Lisa. Bill believes he has a stalker. He thinks he's seen someone with an eye patch following him and acting suspicious. No one takes Bill's suspicions seriously, causing him to take matters into his own hands. He acquires a stun gun, dubbed the Stalker Shocker, from Joe in order to protect himself. Unfortunately for Bill, he inadvertently shocks himself, rendering him helpless when his would-be stalker actually appears. All right, thank you, Lauren. Now, as I mentioned, the survey form was put up on our socials, mainly on Twitter or X, in our Instagram story for a day that contained answers to our categories so that everyone could vote on their favorites. All right, so I want to thank everyone who voted, and now I can reveal the results and compare them to my own answers. We're going to call round one the ABSA committee as the winners were chosen by the listeners. So our first category is going to remain an old favorite. Uh, what scene would you show to a new person? So I put up a couple options uh, and there was actually a write-in vote. I'm just going to kind of shoot through the scenes and talk about each one a little bit. Uh, so coming in number four was Bill and the stalker in the bullpen uh, while Bill is incapacitated. So I'm going to pretty much... Look at that whole block of Bill being incapacitated. Every every point where he was kind of frozen after shocking himself. A couple adequate touches in this scene. Number one, great job by Phil Hartman of not reacting or flinching through an entire scene. That was a, a write-in vote. Somebody pointed that out as an adequate touch. 
All right, uh, but yeah, just kind of a, a great job of acting right there, of, of staying stable as he gets pounded in the face with a goofy ball uh, and, um, you know, gets talked to by his stalker, by, by the Dennis Miller character. Uh, another one is Bill's face as he tests the stun gun on the objects on his desk. I find that to be hilarious. Uh, so if you watch that episode again, just the faces he makes as he kind of jabs at things and, and expects some sort of reaction, um, really great. Also, I really like the touch of the goofy ball storyline covering for Bill's scream, all right? When when Lisa and Dave hear it in the office, they kind of go, oh, that goofy ball, instead of being like, why is somebody screaming? What's going on? Let's go find out what it is. So I thought it was actually a really genius way to kind of overlap the storylines and, and make it really work. One more thing that a response to the survey pointed out was that Dennis Miller, whose shtick is being a conspiracy theorist, or that was kind of his thing, you know, back at that time for his comedy, he plays a conspiracy theorist as the stalker, which I thought was definitely worth mentioning. All right, so that's a good one right there. Coming in at number three, and this is actually a write-in, was Catherine, Dave, and Bill in Dave's office discussing Bill's stalker. Another great scene, obviously. I think, number one, Catherine brings up the friend's resume before the Bill situation. Or right, she casually kind of brings up, hey, did you do this? By the way, someone's trying to kill Bill. Or Bill thinks someone's trying to kill him, I believe she says. And I think that's really funny. Like, she doesn't prioritize that. That's the number two thing on the list. I think it's a great scene for Bill in the physical comedy. You know, coming in with the hat and the dark glasses, kind of hunched over a little bit. You know, kind of speaking and, and over-dramatizing the situation as he talks to Dave and Catherine about it. But really, I think he, he does a lot of stuff with his body that really makes the, the scene work um, in a visual sense. So... I think that's worth mentioning. I, I love that Catherine offers to be the human shield. And then this is a quote that I would put in the usable category. But I wish I could laugh at that. I really do. Also in the scene, you know, we get Dave in, in the exchange of asking who he is. Just a, just a good scene overall. But that came in at number three in terms of showing a new person a scene from this episode. Coming in at number two is Dave, Joe, and everybody in the bullpen as Dave gets pressure to go on a date. I think this is obviously a really funny scene. You know, we all kind of understand the situation as viewers that Dave can't really accept. But, you know, Joe comes in, Catherine jumps on board. I, I think it's really funny with the way Lisa snaps the newspaper as Dave is kind of, you know, hey, what if I told you I actually had somebody? I just haven't told you about them. You know, she spins around, snaps that newspaper. I think that's really kind of funny. As well as when she gives the awkward thumbs up when he specifically asks her what she thinks about him going out with, uh, with the model. I also think what's really funny in that scene is Joe's like, what does everybody think? And you kind of get, you get the impression that it's like the crew behind the cameras going like, oh yeah, hey, hey, thanks, go for it. All right, so kind of like a half-hearted encouragement for Dave to go on the date. An another thing that I really like, I just really like the way Joe kind of ends that scene. You know, like, I'll set it up for you. Eight o'clock, uptown, excellent. Just the way he kind of draws out that excellent, I think is also really funny. It's something that sticks with me. All right, I don't know about really funny, but it's something that sticks with me, and it's one of the things that I kind of quote when I quote the episode or, or might quote the series. The number one scene that was voted for as the scene to show a new person is Lisa and Dave in Dave's office doing the blue shirt gag. All right, over half the votes went for this one. You know, to me, it's a classic Lisa and Dave scene. She comes in wearing one of his shirts tied off. He comments on it. She freaks out about the attention that it might be drawing and asks if he has another shirt for her to wear, where Dave pulls out six supposed shades of blue shirts for her to choose from, and obviously she can't do it. She goes home to change, 
which I realize also kind of sets up for her to return in the elevator with the models later. And we'll talk about that once I get to that kind of section. But, you know, great, great gag of him pointing out the different colors and, and putting them down and her reacting to him makes the, the Rain Man reference. We got a Rosenberg reference in the scene, I also believe. And, you know, here's an enigma for us all to, to kind of ponder. Why does Dave have six different shades of blue shirts in his office? All right, like I accept that he wears blue shirts all the time, but why would you have six slightly different shades hidden in your office as I backup shirts, work shirts? I don't know. Mostly because I think you you would have to have different ties to kind of work with that. I know they're very similar. Maybe I'm overthinking it. Uh, but if you were going to have them as backup shirts, you need to make sure you have a tie that goes with it as well. If he can see the difference in those shades, I would think that he could see the difference in the shades of ties to match it. So that's what I got. But that's the number one scene that people would show a new person. I definitely think it does, it gives a good sense of the comedy of the show and um, it would probably set a good tone. So I, I think that's a good pick, people. I've got one more scene that I want to put out there as an honorable mention. And that is Joe and Dave at the elevator interacting with the models for the first time. <laughs> you know, the, my name is Joe and, you know, I, I highly recommend it. We eat in all of those type of things. And the way that, that Joe and Dave, you know, interact with each other, the way they're kind of mocking each other a little bit about how both of them fail to be cool in front of the models. Uh, but I, I think that scene's also really good. Maybe worth showing a new person. Maybe that's one of the options that should have been up there. But our winner is Lisa and Dave and Dave's office doing the blue shirt gag. Our next category is quote of the episode, which is the quote that either best represents the episode or immediately comes to mind. I think sometimes when we watch an episode, there's one quote that we think of immediately. You know, we get a flash of that episode or we see that's the one that, you know, is up next or whatever. Um, I, I put out in the survey, what is the quote of the episode? And uh, <laughs> with no delay, the winner is... Don't mess with the man with a Wayback Machine. I can make it so you were never born. Jimmy speaking to Dave and Lisa, you know, after they agree to keep their affair a secret and not tell anybody else in the office. I think it is a funny quote. I think it is a funny moment. My personal choice came in third out of four, which was, you know, back in the service, we used to have a saying, you can't expect the troops to salute you if you're sleeping with the sergeant. I, I think that's hilarious. It's just a Jimmyism where... Obviously, it sounds like it should make sense, but it really doesn't make any sense when you when you think about it for a second. And obviously, it's part of a great exchange with with Dave's follow up question there. Winning quote is going to be about the Wayback Machine. My pick would have been about sleeping with the sergeant. Coming in second place was where did Bill go? I thought he was just and who are you? All right, Dave pretending not to know who Bill is when Bill enters his office to discuss having a stalker or somebody trying to kill him in this case. Again, if you've watched the series, uh, then you know that this is kind of a thing with Bill. Bill often thinks that he's being stalked or has somebody who's after him. Uh, we are lucky enough in our episodes to see the ones where someone is actually trying to get to him and, and what happens in that case. But the fact that they kind of dismiss it and they don't treat it very seriously is, you know, for that reason, because it happens all the time. Now, the, the final quote that was actually an option was, uh, I hope you're happy with this little charade. Thanks to you. I now have a dinner date with Miss Australia in 1993. Which I think is probably funnier as an exchange and not a, uh, a quote, a standalone quote, a standalone quote. So uh, maybe I'll get a little bit better at picking some of the quotes there, but that received zero votes and will shuffle off into the ether. 
Our next category is what gag or bit had the biggest impact on the episode, all right? So it gave a couple choices out there to be voted on, and, uh, and obviously a winner was selected. So uh, looking at some of the gags or bits, we had the blue shirts, all right, the Dave and Lisa scene that we mentioned before. Uh, we have Bill Stalker. There was also a write-in for the stun gun that, that Bill uh, fiddles with and ultimately zaps himself with. I kind of want to put those together, so that gives us kind of a tie for that, that middle area there. The references to the Rosenbergs and Yoko Ono. Obviously, Dave and Lisa dropped the Rosenberg reference two or three times. And then Yoko Ono is played for a laugh both between Dave and Lisa and then also Mr. James when he comes in near the end and finds out about their affair. Or he plays that very well. But our winner is the Goofy Ball itself. Um, it seems like people thought the Goofy Ball itself had the biggest impact on the episode. I was kind of split on this. I, I actually might have gone with the references to the Rosenbergs and Yoko Ono because it, it's kind of peppered through and it's kind of good for a laugh. Um, I did not know who the Rosenbergs were. That's going to come up later in the episodes. I'll explain that. Once I looked it up, I kind of got that joke a little bit more. But it's kind of peppered through the entire episode, you know? The stun gun also plays a really, really big part. The stalkerish part plays a big part. But I respect the people have spoken. The goofy ball is the gagger bit that had the biggest impact on the episode. The final category for round one is going to be the best keepsake, all right? What you would take from the episode to display or wear. And the options were the Goofy Ball, the Stun Gun 2000, a.k.a. the Stalker Shocker, the Eye Patch from the Stalker, and Bill's Pick for the Coffee Shop, which I thought was a, a good choice right there. The winner is the Goofy Ball. Overwhelmingly, people thought the Goofy Ball would be great to keep on display, I personally, I think I'm leaning towards the stun gun. I think looking at that would make me laugh every time I looked at it on display. Bill's pick would be great just in general. The eye patch I think might be cool, but I respect the goofy ball. I would go with the stun gun, and that's something we could add to our news radio nook. Those are the episode's main categories. I'm going to save the MVP results for a little bit later in the show, and now I'm just going to mention a couple more things about the episode. Kind of get into kind of a round two here. All right. Something I wanted to mention, some of the cooler aspects of the episode. I mentioned a bunch of the adequate touches before when I did talk about the scenes. But uh, the models were significantly taller than Lisa and Dave. Um, I think when there's a scene with all of them in the elevator lobby there and you can just kind of see that they have the height. I just thought that was a nice touch casting wise, you know, to make sure that there is kind of an aspect where maybe they're physically intimidating to Lisa in that sense as well. Um, but models are stereotypically tall and I, I just kind of like that. I don't know. But the other thing I noticed at one point you go by the, the meeting table and all the drinks are on the table. So you were starting to notice that it's pretty much always the juice box and the soda can and all those things. And I just kind of noticed that as someone walked out of the office into the bullpen, that those were the drinks still on the meeting table, even though I don't believe we had a scene at the meeting table in this episode. Now, there are, there are a couple things that, that people sent in that I think I try to touch on in, in different categories. I, again, appreciate everybody who sent in some, um, some suggestions for this category. Um, I know there are tons more, but I, I try to mention them in different places, and I think I got most of the ones that really stood out to me. I'm really curious to see what other people saw for this episode. Don't be afraid to comment in a tweet on our social media once the episode comes out or you know on our, on our Instagram page as well. We're going to bring up Lauren again, and she has got the Freakzilla Report, which is our reactions to the episode from the message boards. As you may have guessed, this is an episode that predates any real activity in the Usenet forums. 
However, I have found some fun stuff to report in later posts. In December of 1999, someone named Tuttle unearthed a VHS tape that had, among other things, the NBC promo for the episode Goofy Ball leading up to its original air date. It depicted some of the antics of tossing the goofy ball around the office, then showed Dennis Miller walking into the bullpen with the announcer's voice asking, is that Dennis Miller stalking Bill McNeil? Then it cut to the promo for the next show. In June of 2000, someone named Vicky said they had just seen this episode and said that Dave's shirt gag was one of her favorites. She said that to that day, she still could not buy a blue shirt without asking herself, is it azure or lapis or indigo or sapphire or sky or standard blue? In September of 2002, someone named Sanchez posted a pop quiz related to this episode, asking the questions, what magazine was Beth reading in Dave's office? Who was on the cover, and what does it have to do with Mr. James? Someone named Pater came back with some very specific answers. They stated that it was issue number two of a publication called Grand Royale, a magazine written and published by the Beastie Boys. This particular issue had Lee Scratch Perry on the cover, a famed record producer, composer, and singer. As for what it had to do with Mr. James, Pater stated that the character Mr. James was named after a Beastie Boys song, and the Beastie Boys got it from a singer who was profiled in this issue of the magazine. So there you go. Those might be some fun facts, or it might be half-truths and gorilla dust. You be the judge. For years after this episode aired, fans would periodically come to the forum just to type out the message, Guh! 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 It seemed to be a running gag for many years, which warms my little WNYXican heart, and I hope it does yours as well. And that has been this episode's Freakzilla Report. This next section of the podcast, I think, is where I, I like to think about it. It's a little about the, the episode itself, a little bit about more the way that I see the episode. So we're going to start off with what used to be our Hoodoo Alley. Uh, I think I'm going to rename it Pay No Attention to Uncle Jimmy. And this is where I want to talk about conspiracies and weird theories about the show, just kind of in general. Number one. I, I do believe that Catherine sent the stalker up to talk to Bill. All right. Bill's frenemy, Catherine. I don't know if she wanted to scare him. I don't know if she thought she could clear it up and put him at ease. But this guy never came upstairs before. Never came up and confronted Bill. All of a sudden, Bill tells her not to do it. What happens? Man, minutes later, this guy pops upstairs. So I think it's really likely that Catherine went downstairs, saw the guy, decided to put an end to it. You know, what do you want? I just want an autograph for the coffee shop. I'll go on upstairs, go see him. You know, let's get this over with. So uh, I do believe that Catherine sent the stalker up to talk to Bill. That's the only thing I can imagine would have changed that would have made him come up and uh, engage with Bill. My next little conspiracy theory, my next little, uh, this is what, is what makes sense to me, is that the models were actually WNYX radio groupies, or at least one was, okay? It's the best explanation as to why they would stay in the elevator all day, trying to catch one of the staff when they finally got in the elevator and wrote it down. These girls are there for the radio station, and they're riding the elevator until they can get a shot at, I don't know, one of the staff members, hopefully one of the talent, and then maybe, maybe you know, they saw Dave, and was like, oh, he's even cuter, right? Big thing I'm going to base this off of is that Sheila knew Bill McNeil on site before he even spoke. The elevator doors pop open, she goes, whoa, you're Bill McNeil. Oh, yeah, that's right. Thank you for listening, all that kind of stuff. But he didn't speak, so she didn't recognize the voice. She had to know who he was before you know, she got into that elevator. 
I think that Sheila wanted to connect with Bill or, you know, somebody in the in the radio office maybe. I don't know what it was. And she convinced her girlfriends to get on the elevator and ride up and down until she got the plane in motion. All right, so that's kind of what I think. Now, this also partly explains why Lisa was so jealous, right? If the models are in the elevator discussing what to do, Lisa gets on and hears them talking, all right? That's why she's so jealous, because they're talking in the elevator about how Sheila wants to bang Dave that night. It's why Lisa would also rather spill the affair to Mr. James than let Dave leave the room for the date. When she can't convince him that he shouldn't go... You know, he's literally about to stand up. She grabs his leg and spills the beans to Mr. James. That's kind of my theory. The models were WNYX radio groupies. They were there because they wanted to meet somebody from the station, possibly Bill McNeil. And ultimately, they rode the elevator all day trying to get an in and connect with somebody from the radio station. That's my second conspiracy theory. This last one is not really conspiracy theory, but the timeline of this episode is all over the place, as we've noticed with a lot of episodes. And the biggest thing that, that stands out to me is that the stalker, Dennis Miller, comes in and says, oh, you know, it's 1130 at night. We've been here, you know, for three hours. Can you believe it? And I'm like, okay. And then all of a sudden you have Matthew and Beth playing goofy ball, you know, supposedly at 1130 at night. And I'm kind of like, man, like, I understand not really wanting to go home after work. And I understand getting caught up with your friends after work. But, like, there's no way me and one other person are playing goofy ball for five hours at my workplace before I go home. Right? So the whole thing is kind of all over the place time-wise. So here's my timeline. Here's the way that I see it. This is what explains it for me. One. We're going to assume that Catherine leaves the office at about 5.30 p.m., and that's when Bill tells her not to talk to the stalker. Two, we're going to assume that Lisa, Dave, and Jimmy leave the office at about 6 p.m., meaning that Bill stunned himself at approximately 5.45. All right, so that's our timeline, right? Regular workday, I think they go home around 6. We have our window, 5.45. Now, the stalker shows up and starts talking. He looks at his watch, says that that's 11.30, and he can't believe he's been talking for three hours. So if Matthew and Beth are still in the office, they played for about six hours after work ended, I don't see it. I think it's more likely that the stalker mixed up the hands on his watch and Joe underestimated the power of the stun gun. All right, so if you look at the hands, you take the big hand, the little hand, and you switch them around, that makes it only 6.55. The three hours comment is a misdirect, which makes the stalker seem even more unbalanced. So ultimately, he was only stunned for about, what, like 90 minutes or so? All right, stunned himself, stunned himself for about an hour or so. And the stalker mixes up the time. He's only been talking for about an hour, which makes more sense. And then like, you know, in the 90s, yeah, I can see Beth and Matthew playing for that extra hour instead of rather going home or whatever else. All right, that makes more sense. So when I think about this timeline with the stalker and how it all adds up, uh, that's it. You know, Catherine leaves at 5.30. He stuns himself at 5.45. All right, uh, everyone else leaves the office. Lisa, Dave, Jimmy leave the office at about 6. Stalker shows up right after that, you know, and then talks to him for about an hour. And, you know, he's unbalanced anyway. What does he know about time? And then Matthew and Beth come in and obviously smack him in the face with the goofy ball a couple times. Fun, fun, fun. So that's my timeline. That's what I think explains that. I'll explain, I explained why the, the models are on the elevator so much and why the stalker would come up and see. All right. Uh, pay no attention to Uncle Jimmy. 
There are a couple questions. I try to spread out some of the questions in the episode, but a couple questions here. How much did Joe actually spend on that stun gun to build it? Especially if he's using broken parts on this, that, and the third. So 300 bucks, what's his profit margin? <laughs> you know, I am always curious about Joe and how much money he makes off a of bill throughout the course of the season. But this is just another example where I don't think he, he put too much money at all, especially as he built it at the office, putting the final touches on. How much money did he make from that? I'm betting it was close to $300. My other question, the big one is, how often did Jimmy use the office to test products? We see later on that he uses Matthew to test his candy, so he knows which, which stock to kind of buy. Uh, we have this episode where he comes in, he's like, I don't know, I bought some company, why don't you guys play with it all day and, and tell me what you think? So I'm like, how often did this happen? Because I'm, I'm betting that they didn't get paychecks as testers, or maybe that's how Jimmy uh, justified paying their regular salaries, considering the amount of work that they do. <laughs> the fact that they test his products to him makes it worth it, but... I'm just like, how often did Jimmy James bring some to the office or put him in situations so we could actually use it as, as market research and make sure to make a profit off of it? Those, those are my main enigmas here for the episode. I know there's a ton more out there, but those ones I thought in particular kind of stood out to me. This next segment is called Hero, Villain, Winner, Loser. That's pretty self-explanatory. Uh, so I'm going to go through those, and then I'm going to reveal who the people voted as episode MVP, what I think about that. Starting off with the episode's villain, which is kind of like the person who knows the most and cares the least. I have Lisa as this episode's big villain. First, she won't let Dave reveal their relationship to everybody in the office. Then she decides to tell people when it looks like Dave is going to go out with another woman. She makes that decision unilaterally, and obviously they, they argue about it in the scene. I think she cared the least about everybody else's discomfort in trying to protect what she wanted and what she needed. So I have Lisa as the villain. I think more of these episodes go on. She, Lisa doesn't look good. She was not written as a great character, I think, in a lot of cases. So her being jealous and you know expecting Dave to kind of break the date and you know deciding to tell Mr. James... You know, I think she's this episode's villain. Our episode's hero, the one who I think is the most virtuous, is actually Joe. I mean, look, at again, Joe's kind of a great friend in this episode. He hooks Dave up on a date with Miss Australia in 1993, which, again, this episode taking place in the mid-90s means it was only a couple years ago. If my buddy hooked me up with a model, who uh, like a, a Miss Australia... I mean, how much better of a friend can you really have for somebody to set that up for you? They think you're single, they do all that. All right, big big up to Joe right there. Also, he hooks Bill up with a very effective self-defense tool. I mean, whether it looks like a garage door opener or not, it surpassed that 90-minute mark, you know, anywhere from around three hours to, to an hour and a half in terms of incapacitating Bill. So, I mean, again, his buddy needed something to protect himself. Joe came through in the clutch. All right, made a little bit of a profit, but he also came through in the clutch. The real hero move by Joe in this episode is that he doesn't let Bill test the stun gun on Matthew. Bill immediately thinks of testing on Matthew, and Joe's like, no, 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 no. Like, we're not going to do that to Matthew. So uh, Joe is kind of looking out for Matthew in that case, which I think is a very good look. Definitely a little bit more heroic. <laughs> when you consider that Matthew could have been incapacitated for a couple hours, you know, good move by Joe. So Joe's my hero for this episode. This episode's big loser. My big loser for the episode is Dave. Number one, he can't trust his girlfriend anymore. 
He has this big news he wants to tell people. He goes so far to cover up for her that he's going to go on a date with another very attractive woman. Then she decides to spill the beans to their boss. I mean, it's like, oh boy, man, like, like how, do you, how do you really trust her? Man, she's doing a lot of zigging and zagging. B, his boss now knows he's having an affair with a subordinate. I mean, even in the 90s where that might have been a little less uh, alarming, I suppose, it's still not a great look for your boss to be aware that you're having an affair with, you know, somebody who works for you. And I like how Mr. James kind of rubs it in at the, you know, elevator. So, you know, who's going to go cover that primary? Lisa. Oh, uh, uh, uh. Uh, I, I do like how Mr. James rubs it in. But, man, that's another loss for Dave, right? He's immediately on his heels and defensive. Tough. Now, finally, he has to break a date with a model right before they go out in person, in front of her friends, in an elevator. And he probably was going to miss out on model sex. If uh, if she was so into Dave and she was all that fired up, Dave, ready to go, then I think there was a pretty good chance that he was going to score that night. Especially if she was a WNYX groupie, as my theory goes, um, and she was just fired up to, to be a part of the band, as they say. So Dave, unfortunately, is my big loser in this episode. The big winner for this episode is actually going to be the stalker, Dennis Miller's character. Number one, he, he gets his goal. He gets the autograph. Not as cool as Bill signing it in person right in front of him, but there is a stack. It's signed. He gets an autograph, gets to go back to the coffee shop, tell all his boys, I came through. I told you I was going to do it. There it is. He also gets to espouse his political theories to somebody he clearly admires, right? If he likes Bill enough and he wants to come over, if he's been watching him, you know, stalking him so that he could get this autographed picture to put up at the coffee shop, or he definitely thinks highly of Bill. So he might have just assumed that Bill was shy in person. You know, some celebrities are great, you know, on, on TV or, or over the radio and not great in person. And it was up to him to provide the conversation. But he gets to chat and speak his mind to one of his... You know, I would say one of his heroes, one of somebody he really clearly admires very, very much. So the big winner is the stalker. He, he gets all his goals and he comes through in the end. That's how I'm going for it. The people's choice for MVP. And I'm going to go through all the candidates until we get to the winner. Uh, receiving no votes was Joe, which I think is kind of curious because he was involved in both storylines. He's the guy who set up Dave and he's the one that gave Bill the, uh, the stun gun. So I kind of thought maybe he would sneak in there as a vote, but... People did not agree. Lisa got a vote. I thought, again, you know, she did have to do a lot. I think Lisa was all over the place, just kind of the way that the writing went. But she, you know, she had a lot of range. She had a lot to do in this episode, you know, and kind of emotionally was jumping all over the place. So, you know, I thought that was a worthy consideration for somebody who's a um, MVP of the episode. Coming in second is Dave, uh, which again, Dave does a lot of reacting. He gets a lot of good jokes in there, especially at Bill's expense. You know, I thought it was a pretty solid Dave episode, just in general. And that, that all-around goodness was worthy of MVP consideration. But our winner is Bill. That's what the people have demanded, or the people have at least voted for. Bill is our winner. Uh, again, great episode by Phil Hartman. Great, great physical comedy. I don't know. I didn't think of it as a Bill episode. I didn't think it was necessarily a Bill-heavy episode. But I have to say, you know, every time Bill's on screen, he lights it up. He's always doing something really, really funny. So... I have no qualms. I have no uh, objections to that MVP selection by the people. Moving into a couple other general considerations just about the cast. I still do want to do a little bit of, you know, quote I'd like to use in real life. 
and I actually mentioned it earlier, which was going to be, I wish I could laugh at that. I really do. You know, I think that's something that if you're trying to be super serious or you're trying to play super serious with people, you know, and they make a suggestion or a joke, you know, you just look them dead in the eye and tell them, I wish I could look at that. I wish I could laugh at that. I really do. I, I think that has some, some comedy implications. I, I think there's some things there that could be funny. So I did not prepare any other quotes to use in real life. I tried to mention some quotes earlier. The sleeping with the sergeant line is one that I, again, any Jimmyism, any Jimmyism, I'm, I'm always tempted to try to use in the real world because it always sounds like it makes sense until you think about it for half a second. So the sleeping with the sergeant line is something that I would be tempted to say, but I'm not even sure I could deliver it cleanly. And if you mess it up, then it makes no sense. But yeah, so I, I suppose those two would be my, my selections for quotes most likely to use in real life. I did want to mention a couple other exchanges. I, I think it's really funny when Matthew has the goofy ball come in to Dave's office. Dave is like, what I tell you about that? And then Matthew, not paying any attention, goes, yeah, don't, don't worry about it, though. I'm going to have a talk with her. I think that's a really, really funny exchange between the two of them. I love when Beth is on the couch as Lisa and Dave fight over him going on the date. Primarily, again, the whole line about, you know, now I'm going out with Miss Australia in 1993. And Beth gives the, you know, it absolutely cracks me up every time I watch the episode. You know, one of the, one of the funniest parts, for sure. Obviously, at the end, she's like, did you guys want to be alone after the fight's over? I think it's pretty funny. Along the lines of the sleeping with the sergeant line, you know, you have to mention Dave's retort, which is which branch of the service were you in? All right, just kind of calling um, attention to how ridiculous that statement by Jimmy is, how ridiculous that Jimmyism actually is. Uh, so I like that exchange as well. And I just want to make sure I mention those. We have Lauren coming up next here with the Usenet forums, a time capsule from the internet. As noted in the Freakzilla report, there were no posts in the Usenet forum from the time that this episode aired. I have, however, scoured the internet in search of news radio related happenings from around this time. About a week after this episode aired, there was a TV movie that premiered called In the Line of Duty, Hunt for Justice. Stephen Root was featured in the film as a character named Jan Lamont. It's based on a true story about a state trooper who was gunned down on a New Jersey highway. His friend and colleague sets out to track down the killers. Realizing the murder is connected to an extensive underground terrorist ring, he joins forces with the FBI on a massive five-state hunt. One week before this episode aired, the Unabomber's Manifesto was published in the New York Times and the Washington Post. The essay was titled The Industrial Society and Its Future, and it was 35,000 words long. Ted Kaczynski may have gone down in history for the crime, but of course Joe Gorelli admitted to it long ago. The top movie in the U.S. box office on this date was Tu Wong Fu, Thanks for Everything, Julie Newmar, starring Wesley Snipes, Patrick Swayze, and John Leguizamo. The number one song in the U.S. was Gangsta's Paradise by Coolio. The top home video game in the United States at the time was Mortal Kombat 3. And this has been a time capsule from the Internaut. Okay, thank you, Lauren. All right, coming up next is going to be like my, my references fact section. I still don't have a great name for it. I know that was one of the things as I should. But here are some things I learned, some, some real facts about the people, references in the episode. The Rosenbergs. All right, so the Rosenbergs were an American married couple who were convicted of spying for the Soviet Union, including all sorts of top secret designs about radar, sonar, jet engines, nuclear weapon designs. 
Convicted of espionage in 1951, they were executed by the federal government of the United States in 1953 at Sing Sing Correctional Facility in Ossining, New York, becoming the first American civilians to be executed for such charges and the first to be executed during peacetime. Julius and Ethel Rosenberg. So there are a couple references to that in the episode, and I had to look up who they actually were. Dennis Miller. Dennis Miller was at Saturday Night Live from 1985 to 1991, and Phil Hartman was there from 1986 to 1994, so they had worked together before. I love the fact that Dennis Miller and Phil Hartman had had that kind of comedy relationship and brought it to news radio for that scene. I'm finally going to get to the most important parts, which was the models. Obviously, I'm like, who are they and what are they up to? Sheila. All right, that was the the blonde one, the one that wanted to go out with Dave. Her name is Allison uh, Bra, B-R-A-H-E. All I could find on her pretty much was that she and her husband have three children, Lotus, River, and Bodie Faith. Um, This was basically her only acting role. The other work was like as herself or as a host. So that was, that's Sheila. Emily in the black top and jeans. Real name is Wendy Hamilton. And her blurb was so good that I pretty much pulled most of it. And I'm just going to read it because I was like, this is, this is almost what I'd want on my obituary. Never mind a career, right? So Wendy Hamilton, tall, 5'10". Busty and voluptuous brunette knockout Wendy Hamilton was born in Detroit, Michigan. Her father raced Corvette sports cars and was a test pilot for speedboats. So cool. While her mother was a fashion model, Hamilton started out modeling swimsuits at age 12 in local fashion shows. She made her modeling debut at a shopping mall in Bradenton, Florida in 1979. Wendy was the captain of the basketball team, the Hurricanes, at Manatee High School. Hamilton was the Playmate of the Month in December 1991 issue of Playboy. Wendy was featured in a large number of Playboy videos and posed for a slew of Playboy newsstand special editions. Moreover, Wendy Hamilton not only made a guest appearance on an episode of the TV series News Radio, but also acted in several low-budget movies which include Ski School 2, The Dallas Connection, and Midnight Temptations. Again, pretty cool blurb, a pretty good career, obviously, you know, known for being beautiful, but worth reading. I mean, father raised sports cars, test pilot, mother was a model, like, very cool. The other model in the episode, Carol, which I believe was the white top and the skirt, her name is Elizabeth Jolie, S-J-O-L-I, and she was actually in a couple episodes at this time of, of different series. So she's an episode of Friends, the one where the monkey got away. They go knocking door to door. They find these attractive girls, you know, whose radiator's broken, if I remember correctly. And she is one of them. She was in Seinfeld, the episode The Scaflaw. She did Silk Stockings, which was, I believe, a racy USA show. And, you know, that's just a couple that I recognized off of her IMDb. But she was also, you know, she was an actor. She had a kind of had a minute where she was popping up on a couple things and she popped up in news radio. That is the research that I did for this episode. Hopefully people find that to be interesting. All right, we're at our catch-all part of the episode. Just a couple things that I wanted to mention. First and foremost, I'd like to come back. I called it serial suspects, but I do like to come back and point out character trends, let's call them. All right, so first of all, 
I do think this is an evil mastermind Jimmy episode. All right, he's using the staff to test his toys for a business. There's no way he's paying them as a, as a test group or a control group or whatever the hell he's going to do with it. But I definitely believe he's making money off of them and they have no, you know, they're not getting compensated. And unless, of course, again, they don't really have to do their jobs because they're doing this stuff for Jimmy. That that might actually explain why nobody really has to work sometimes in this uh, in this radio station. Um, I also want to say that Serial Killer Joe is definitely on the table. This guy knows how to build a super effective homemade stun gun in order to incapacitate people for long periods of time. I find that very serial killery definitely something i've seen in in other movies and tvs about people getting to the victims so joe despite being the hero of the episode and actually looking out for matthew again did not necessarily dispel the the notion that he might be a serial killer like we're just we're just gonna say it like that i do think it's interesting uh i called it the drivers last episode but i think this episode is kind of about joe needing to help dave get a date with a model that's one of the things that really pushes the storyline forward um and then this is about bill needing to feel safe from a stalker all right that kind of uh facilitates the stun gun and everything that comes after that so you know again i'm like what, what really pushes this episode forward and those are two things joe needing to help dave get a date and bill needing to feel safe Okay, that's it. Thank you for listening. I appreciate any feedback for our Instagram and Twitter accounts. Let me know what you thought of today's episode. The third and final episode of the Games of Folly unit is going to be 420, and I just think that's going to be a lot of fun. Be on the lookout for the survey so you can vote for the categories in the next episode. That'll get posted on our Twitter. Probably put a link in our Instagram when it goes up. I'm going to see if the Facebook group minds. I will probably put a link in there so that everybody in the Facebook group can also vote if they want to do that. All right. Uh, Once again, thanks for listening. Until next time, I'll catch you guys on the flip-flop. Thank you for visiting the Hoodoo Factory, the source for all your Hoodoo needs. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Hoodoo underscore Factory. The Hoodoo Factory is part of the Stolen Dress Podcast Network. Please stop by our gift shop at grabitgear.com. And remember, the Hoodoo Factory is the supplier of the only known antidote for ABSA fever.